And so we hope in those things. And so what happens in the intervening time is the people, Mary and Joseph and Jesus, moved from a manger, moved from a place off to the side where there was no room, to the house of God in the temple. They moved back into the place in the realm of God, from Bethlehem to this temple place. What they do, and this is this is lost on us because this is, if you've been to a Christmas pageant, this portion of the story is often not presented. First, it's admittedly the eighth day circumcision would be awkward to be in the Christmas pageant, but the presentation of the Lord is often skipped as well. But what we find with Mary and Joseph, if we leave off just that they went to Bethlehem, is that they were at that moment good citizens. Caesar Augustus issued a census, and so they went where they were supposed to go. But in this story, we find out that they are faithful people to the God of Israel. These people aren't just good citizens, and there's a darker way to read uh, what census means in the first century and how it was more threat that maybe got them on that journey than their willingness. But certainly here, it's their willingness to do what God has commanded. Now one of the things that we find in this passage, it's, it's works of law or works of God, is sort of written five times, is that Jesus' body is inscribed with the law, inscribed with being a person of Israel, inscribed with being a Jew by birth. Christianity, when it goes awry, oftentimes forgets the Jewishness of Jesus. It forgets that he comes from a particular place and a particular people. It's often, um, this is a motif sort of in Westerns more than anything, but the, but the sort of the hero, the victor, and it's an anti-hero type hero in Westerns, but, but shows up just from nowhere. They sort of come upon the scene. They're the one who sort of brings the town back together. But what we have for us in this story is a hero who comes from a people comes from a place, set not to fulfill um, just making the world better, but specific promises given over time to God's people in the world. And so Christ, in his circumcision, is marked literally with the book of Leviticus, chapter 12. That Christ's body is brought into this place. That's, um, it's also, in Leviticus, to, to reenact this story out, that that if you have a child, you should offer a lamb, but if you can't afford a lamb, two turtle doves will uh, suffice. Um, which now all of you are like, two turtle doves. <laughs> We're back to the sermon. Um, because you'll be at the 12 rings when church is over, probably, and out the door. Um, uh, two turtle doves for, and so not our Jesus' parents in this passage, they're not only pious, they're not only people who follow the law of God who are bringing Jesus into that place, but they are also um, uh, poor. There are people who that can't provide the necessary sacrifice. Well, they provide the necessary sacrifice in its indented form. Offer a lamb, you can't offer two birds. And so these people, Mary and Joseph, are ones who sort of enact it in this way, becoming for Jesus this, this person marked by the law on the eighth day and on the fortieth day in the presentation in the temple. This also comes from the Old Testament, is that you would bring 
firstborn sons to be presented in the temple. And God had a claim on all firstborn, whether they be uh, cattle or people or whatever, stemming from the Old Testament. But the, it's you could pay five something. Uh, it was not an animal, five dollars, five cents. I can't remember the exact term all of a sudden. But you could pay so your son didn't have to be a priest. Um, but that's not mentioned for Mary and Joseph people. They, they bring him and present him to the temple. And where the story ends that he grew in stature and in, in strength is this clear mirroring of sort of what happens with Samuel um, and his mother Hannah is that she brings Jesus out. Now this is um, part of training us to be good readers again. That these stories just aren't stories that drop out of nowhere but connect and expand in interesting and vast ways. They push us through the whole biblical narrative in many different ways, back and forth, looking at what does all this mean for Jesus to come from this place. It's incidental that the, that the firstborn teaching that comes from Exodus that they're sort of going through is about their deliverance. To be reminded that this deliverance is a deliverance that's coming from Jesus as well at the forefront of the gospel is another way that Luke is sort of layering up the themes at this opening, is that he's marking Jesus as this one who does this, this one who is faithful. And if you think about, and we sing these things during Christmas, but as one who bears the curse, is that he enters fully into the human condition. Matthew um, doesn't offer a lot of details about Jesus' childhood. John, none. Mark, none. But Luke fills in these, these stories, this one and the one where he's left at the temple and then in the next scene, of sort of allowing us to see that Jesus is one who goes through these rituals and these places that becomes a fully human one, one who just doesn't drop in from on far away. And that's just the beginning of the story for us today. Is that on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the angel, the name the angel had given him when he was conceived. And when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. For it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said, a pair of doves for two young pigeons. But when they get there, something amazing happens. Now there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon who was righteous and devout. Now if Simeon sees Jesus as a sign. He talks about him as a sign. Uh, Simeon's name in Greek and somewhat in English, uh, but more obviously in Greek, is like a sign. There's a man named like a sign who's awaiting a sign in Jerusalem, the holy city of God. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. What Simeon is waiting for is this promise and and it's become apparent to me that if you really want to know the Christmas story, it would be wise to read the book of Isaiah over and over again, because lots of almost all the images are being pulled, not only from the early parts of the Torah, but the book of Isaiah seems to have a pinnacle relation in expressing who Jesus is to his people. But anyways, he's, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel, the comforting of Israel, the encouraging of Israel, the, the, the almost the bringing back together of Israel. Now it's interesting that Simeon is waiting for this, because not everybody is waiting for this. 
This goes back to hope, is that at this time, there are people who think maybe things are fine the way they are. And it's easy to think that fines are the way they are if they're fine for you. But to be able to look outside yourself oftentimes draws your eyes to the attention that things aren't as they should be. So Simeon, in his waiting, becomes this one who's sort of being assigned himself to the things are not as they should be. That Israel, while it has um, some version of a temple at this moment, has some image in place to be in the world. They are captive. They are not free. They are bound in this empire. Um, and there are people who are awaiting something from God. It's not clear to everyone that that's what's needed. The same thing is the Holy Spirit was upon him. There's a professor I had at one point who said the Holy Spirit is often the shy member of the Trinity and that the Holy Spirit often points and directs towards Jesus. That it's, it's sort of gifting is saying, look over there. Uh, take what's in this place with this one, with this God coming amongst us. Now, that is not a full-blown doctrine of the Holy Spirit, so don't take that as it is. But oftentimes in Scripture, we see the Holy Spirit doing this. So the Holy Spirit showed up for Mary, showed up for um, uh, Zechariah, showed up for these people who praise in this time. And it brings these people to praise often, praise of what God is doing. and gives them vision to see what God is doing. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought the child Jesus to him to do for him what was the custom of the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. Simeon, who's been waiting for this, and it's been told to him that he will see the Lord's Messiah. When this poor couple, Mary being a teenager, Joseph not much older than that, um, and going back to give some sense of their circumstance, it says that this purification rite was for them, for both Mary and Joseph, which wouldn't be normal, which means that Mary gave birth most likely without a midwife, and so Joseph is also in need of purification himself. The point being is he sees this couple come in, um, poor as they are, with doves instead of the lamb, and what he sees because of the Spirit is the ones who are carrying the Lord's Messiah. All signs point to the contrary. So you would think they'd have the lamb. You would think they wouldn't both need purification. You would think things would be better than this. And yet, because of the Spirit's work in him, he's able to see through those things. Now, what I find even more amazing is Mary and Joseph come in this way uh, 40 days after the birth, uh, and he sees them as the Lord's Messiah, and knowing that, he offers them a song. <clears throat> no money, no gift. Uh, no, hey, you guys aren't in a manger again, are you? Because I have an extra room. All this may happen. I'm not saying it doesn't. But what Simeon knows at this moment is he's bound to praise. That the Spirit working through him binds him to praise. We have this in our lives and world in some ways, that there are moments when we confront something, whether it be in nature or another person, and it 
with other people, you may see it in a way that it absolutely terrifies you as well. Um, it may not defile you to praise and, and awe. But we have this, it happens in our lives, these moments of transcendence where it's like, there are other things we could do. I could take a picture. I could participate in some other ways. But perhaps it's best for me to, to uh, take this in, to offer praise and resound in this place. It's not for me to figure it out right now. And you could pick on a sunset, but but there are other places, I think, more intimately related to our lives, places that we don't even want to share often, where it's happened that we've seen this. That it was beauty beyond that causes us to pray. What's interesting about the Spirit's work for Simeon is that it's not beauty beyond, but seeing God's promises fulfilled. It's seeing God's word coming into this place, God's, God's um, promise here. And so he brings out that promise. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations, a light for the revelation of the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. The fathers, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Simeon's praise is one that calls out that he's seen the promise of what God has done. And what happens, and we tried to talk about this because I think what happens with Simeon and Anna um, is they're a sign for us in the ways that we live too in a world that still has darkness within it. But what Christians, those whom are animated by the Spirit, can begin to see is to see these promises as if they are fulfilled. Simeon at this moment says, you may dismiss me to go in peace, which you could read as, I can die now. Um, it's a common thing with baseball fans or sports fans, or whatever team wins the World Series, now I can die in peace. Um, uh, that's, that's one way you could read it, or you could view it as that he'd been on a vigil for this thing to happen, and now he can go in peace away from that. But that that to be at the temple waiting, waiting and watching over and over again, it's not his call anymore. He's seeing what God is going to do. This is a challenge for us because we often can set our sights and be captive to the world as it is. And the goodness it is for that, oftentimes in 21st century North America, and often in the challenge in the darkness that it is. But what Simeon is able to do for us is, is to practice that sort of that dual vision of being able to see that now that Christ has come, now that God has acted in fulfilling his promises, they're almost in some ways already here. Maybe not in fulfillment yet, but light has begun to break. And this light, he says, is for all nations in the light of revelation for the Gentiles. To awaken people with dim minds, these Gentiles. They're, they're horrible. They're also us. <laughs> uh, we're the ones whom this light turns on for so that we can see the acts of God as well. Jesus comes from Israel, but he comes as a light to all people. Joseph and Mary have been through a lot so far, so it's interesting that they find a way even to marvel at what Simeon says. 
But then he blesses them. He says, this child is destined to be the cause of falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. This child is destined to be uh, cause for the rising and falling of many in Israel is, is easy to figure out, I guess, if you read the Gospels, but, it, but that he will be spoken against, we see in the world, I think, today. But so that the hearts of many may be revealed, I think, is the real challenge for Mark's face. Is that through this sign, the hearts of many will be revealed, is what Simeon proclaims. Now, um, light casts a shadow, I think, is one of the ways here. The, Jesus, uh, we often say, Prince of Peace comes to bring peace. And we've talked about this before, but peace for us in America often is defined as the absence of conflict. Whereas peace for, for Jews and peace in many other languages and religions is defined as more holistically. Shalom is the word we'd be used for it in Hebrew, but it's this way in which world is put back together and healed. It's, it's that dark things are cast out, the things that no longer belong are. So Jesus when he is asked about peace at one point, he says that, that I've come to divide. I bring a sword. And what I think we see in this thing, in the hearts being revealed, is that what happens is um, God cuts open those things and cuts apart what doesn't belong. Our own deformations. The deformations of violence in the world, deformations of addiction, the ways in which we're bent in incorrect ways, that through Jesus and this dividing, and through Jesus and this work, a true peace will come. Peace needs this sort of way if it's to be a true peace. Peace, peace, we made it through the family gathering without talking about politics or that fight we had 20 years ago. It's not much of a peace. You survived is not what the biblical vision looks like for peace. It's the comfort. It's the shalom. It's the, the rest and relaxation. It's the goodness of God that comes in that peace. And so Jesus, Simeon tells his mother, will be a sign that will be spoken of against so that the hearts of many will be revealed. And I think they're revealed in a way which will make peace flourish on earth, painful as that might be. And there was a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Camilla of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. Now, the NIV says very old. Um, until then, until then was a widow of 84, so seven plus 84. I think she's like almost 100. Um, so as young people are one to do, which I am no longer that young, or as I tell David, or that pretty, um, uh, no longer that young or that pretty, uh, this is very old, um, not just a little old. And at this time, first century Israel, very, very old. Um, and Hannah, she never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. 
Hannah is one who sort of resided and rested in that spot with God. And so she is like Simeon, their male and female counterparts, figure that out. But their male and female counterparts resting in that things are not as they should be. Fasting in the first century world um, was standing for meals. And, and Luke has this huge theology of meals and meal sharing that will work out um, as we go through Luke, actually, funny enough, in the new year. But um, abstaining from meals and fasting is this protest against the way that the world is. She herself is not acknowledging that things are, aren't, are, are not well. She herself, in some sense, mourns for these people through her fasting and prayers. Coming up on them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child who were, to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Hannah um, is this prefiguration for us in that you tell about this thing when you come upon it. She is an evangelist in the same way as, as many of you are familiar. Mary, the first one to find Jesus in the tomb, runs back to the apostles and tells them he's not there, he is risen. Hannah also, in, in the first century world, there's a way in which shepherds that were all familiar with the shepherds that come, you couldn't really have shepherds testify in court, shady folks that they are, I guess. Um, the women's testimony is about the same, but, but the gospel has this way of sort of turning these categories over. Who comes and sees Jesus out in the field? Shepherds, people of Jerusalem, people who shouldn't be there. Who comes and shares the news with faithful Israel waiting? Not another mighty prophet raised up by God, but a very, very old woman who shares with those who are waiting the restoration of Israel. When Moses, Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, uh, to their hometown of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong and was filled with wisdom and grace. Filled with wisdom and, sorry, I looked away and filled it. And the grace of God was on him. The sign for us today in this passage, what shapes our lives, I think, and I alluded to this earlier, is this witness of Simeon and Anna. We are ones, as we went through Advent, who heard, keep awake. Keep watch from the full-grown Jesus. You don't know the time and the hour when I will come again. Simeon and Anna and their practice at the temple, different for us, are ones who show the patience with God. They wait with God. They know that God will restore and spare. They know that things aren't right or perfect in the world as well. They're evangelists, and that they share the good news they've also received. They're ones who don't keep this to themselves, but enact those things in the world. I think for us this day, it is for us to, to take that witness to heart. One of my favorite things when we do uh, Advent is Jesus says, when you pray, and we go, oh, yes, when we pray, we'll pray. And Jesus says, when you give alms and when you give money, it's like, well, we'll do that too, I guess. 
And then he says, when you fast, and you say, when the Spirit comes upon me and I feel called to fast, maybe then I'll fast. <laughs> Jesus' assumption is that the people who follow him were people of prayer, people of giving, and as much as it kills us, a people who fast. Because fasting becomes the body's way of praying in some ways, but fasting also becomes a way of self-denial and sort of concentrating ourselves on what God is going to do. But the good news for us is that we are in the season of Christmas which is 12 days of fasting. <laughs> or feasting, not fasting. You really had it here. So it's, yeah, well, we were like heaven if we're up and up. Um, but we find ourselves pulled in two directions by this witness to our faith. We find ourselves pulled backwards to to seeing that Christ has come amongst us, that joy, that incarnation, that God with us, Emmanuel, and we find ourselves pulled into the future that God needs to bring consolation, now not just to Israel, but to all the Gentiles in the world, that God needs to, to come and restore again. So for us, for us to hear and to see those lives shaped by the life of Jesus awaiting him as we await his return, but also celebrate his gift amongst us. Let us pray. God, we, like Simeon, proclaim that we have seen your mighty acts of salvation. We no longer keep watch at a temple, but we've been dismissed. But Lord, this light, as he tells Mary and Joseph, will cast a great shadow in the world. It will be for the rising and falling of many. It will be for the revealing of hearts. It will be, as Jesus tells us, to bring true peace to this place, not the cheap and easy kind. So God, we ask that we too can be inspired by the witness. Be faithful watchers and celebrators. Be faithful prayers. Be faithful pastors. To be people whose lives are enlivened and enlightened by the gift of you amongst us. And as they waited for promises of old to Israel, we wait on promises given to us in the rest of the New Testament of your coming return and the restoration of all things. Be with us now in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.